Welcome to Scandal Water, where the tea is hot and the conversation lively. Your hosts, Candy and Ashley, will discuss a peculiar story somehow related to the entertainment industry. This podcast might not change the world, but it just might satisfy your thirst for an intriguing tale. Oh, it's that time of day. Tune in and hear what the ladies say. It's time to bend your ear when the silver screen appears. Stories about the stage and screen and everything in between. So come on and join the fun. The curtain opens in three, two, one. Stories and scandal water. It's where you need to be. Stories and scandal water. Let's pour you a cup of tea. Happy Valentine's Day, Ashley. Happy Valentine's Day, Candy. I absolutely love that this episode is actually coming out on February 14th. I think that's amazing. It is. I love it too. For for me particularly, Valentine's Day is very special. First really? and foremost, it's Kennedy's birthday. Oh, happy the best... birthday, Kennedy. Yes, happy birthday, honey. Love you so much. But yeah, when it's your daughter's birthday, that obviously makes it very special. Mm-hmm. But I'm also lucky. Kirk is such a sweetheart. He has given me some romantic gifts over the years. One that stands out. It's been now 10 or 15 years, but, and Kirk is not a super techie guy, (laughs) but what he did was he gathered a lot of pictures that involved the two of us together or the family or some of me just acting in community theater. And he took them to one of his friends at school and this lovely person helped him. They put it to the song, Queens, You're My Best Friend. Oh, Kirk. And I'm going to tell you, I cried so hard over that gift, probably watched it five or six times cried through all of them and of course over the years I have watched it you know I'll pull it out I'll watch Mm -hmm. it I have the strongest feels every time I watch that and to this day it's like I said it's probably been 10 or 15 years if I hear that song come on the radio yes if it comes Mm -hmm. on the radio or if I'm in a restaurant it comes on the soundtrack it just floods me with the most positive feelings that's so sweet it was a beautiful gift I think the sentimental gifts are the best and I tell you the best gift of all is like a mixtape you know, where yeah. it's just like those songs. It's like, this makes me think of you. You know what? That's a beautiful transition because mm-hmm. I was going to say, again, with this idea of Valentine's Day in mind, I looked up some articles. What are suggestions for romantic things you can do to celebrate Valentine's Day? You just named one of them. A mixtape. Su- yes, a mixtape was mm-hmm. one of the suggestions. Would you Which, like to take a guess? It's not really a mixtape anymore, right? Right, it would have been playlist. A playlist. Yeah. It would be a playlist now or a mixed CD or something like that. But it's just songs that make you think of the person which Brian did make one of those for me but I don't think it was for Valentine's Day it was a long long time ago but I really liked that yeah very romantic gesture Mm -hmm. yeah it is and you just pick out songs that like I said make you think of that person or if you have a special like this was playing when this happened and it's a fun song or just something like that just to say this is how I feel about you if you can't say it in words Mm -hmm, like Jim Croce said I have to say I love you in a song (laughs) pulling out the lyrics yep Well, I looked at two articles that actually overlapped a bit. Good Housekeeping and Country Living both had some great suggestions. Here are a few of the other things that they said couples might want to consider. Okay. You could cook together. You could take a hike together. You could write each other a love letter. Play tourist in your own town, like a little day trip. Oh, that's fun. I thought that was cute. Go stargazing recreate one of your favorite dates with each other have an indoor picnic oh that's like dinner (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> and then they said, <laughs> do a movie marathon with all your favorite rom-coms. And in fact, both of these articles made a point of saying traditional things to do would include chocolates, mm-hmm. roses, mm-hmm. a nice dinner out, a card, mm-hmm. or watching a rom-com. Yeah, yeah. So that was a theme that kept coming up. And that is what leads us to the topic of today's episode. We're going to be talking about the queen of the rom-com. In fact, this lady who, by the way, we'll I'll bring this out in just a second. This was Ashley's suggestion. She's yes. a fan and we'll find out why in just a second. But Nora Efron yes. is credited really for creating the modern yes. rom-com. Yes. I found this website, Academy of Achievement is the name of the website. They literally list her as creator of the modern mm-hmm. rom-com. And since we are doing creators and innovators this month, she is perfect for Valentine's Day. It's just perfect. Absolutely. Well, tell us why you're such a big fan. Well, I I don't know how to put it into words. And it's funny because the thing I like the best about her is her words. I love the way mm-hmm. she writes. I love her dialogue. I love the way she thinks and the way she puts together films. Some are, Her films are some of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Mixed Nuts, I've talked about it before. It's one of my, if not my favorite Christmas movie one of my very favorite Christmas movies because it's so focused on character and they seem so real Mm -hmm. and I think a quote that I really love of hers I'm not going to get it right but it's something along the lines of write it funny and you win Mm. so if you have something tragic that happens in your life or have these situations just write about it in a funny way and then you become the the winner instead of the victim wow you are nailing the segues today (laughs) because that's actually the next thing I was going to share yeah Yes, I was not able to actually watch this documentary myself, but I saw it referenced several times and I saw some clips from it. But after she passed, her son created a documentary called Everything is Copy. Oh, yeah, that's what her mother used to say. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And your reference goes straight to that. So I'm going to play this very tiny clip that explains exactly what you were just saying. Okay, good. You know, you'd come home with some thing that you thought was the tragedy of your life. Someone hadn't asked you to dance or your hem had fallen out of your dress or whatever you thought was the worst thing that could ever happen to a human being. And my mother would say everything is copy. I now believe that what my mother meant is this. When you slip on a banana peel, people laugh at you. But when you tell people you slipped on a banana peel, it's your laugh. So you become the hero rather than the victim of the joke. I think that's what she meant. On the other hand, she may merely have meant everything is copy. Yes. I loved that. I do too. Taking control of your own story instead Mm -hmm. of being the victim Mm -hmm. when you're the one who tells your story, when you are able to deal with it and be real about it. Mm -hmm. Now you are empowered. Right. It's yours. Right. It's your story to tell. By the way, I want to go ahead and say this as well. I was not able to watch that particular documentary, but what I did find was this 35 minute basically YouTube clip called The Very Best of Nora Ephron with Tom Hanks, Mike Nichols, and Rob Reiner and it was fabulous and it gave me wonderful information so in addition to a lot of different written articles I do want to shout that one out we'll we'll share the link 
Yes, definitely. Well, I agree with what you said, Ashley, when I was researching her because because here's my my situation. I have seen so many of her movies, mm-hmm. but she was not on my radar. Really? I enjoyed her movies, mm-hmm. but I couldn't have told you anything about her herself. Nora yeah, Efron. I probably don't know a lot about her personally other than I know that I really enjoy her writing and I know that I enjoy the inspiration. Well, that's a weird way to say it. I appreciate the inspiration that she gives me as a person aspiring writer who wants to write things that seem real and it Mm -hmm. reminds me of don't try to make it all melancholy just tell the truth but tell it funny Mm -hmm. well now that I have researched her and I know more about her the reason why I wanted to start with that particular clip from her was because I think that's one of the biggest secrets of her success and you've already alluded to it several times it's the fact that she is and has been in all of her works so real and so relatable Mm -hmm. because of her vulnerability Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. she would tell it like it is she would just absolutely give you all the (laughs) ugly details right but then as you said turn it around so that she is the hero of her own story and she's made it funny right well I'm now a fan (laughs) didn't know her before I'm I'm now a fan (laughs) sleepless in Seattle boy that's one of the best that is one of the best is that your favorite oh gosh no I just like them all when Harry met Sally Mm -hmm. they're just so many good quotable lines and that's what I aspire to do is just write something with so many quotable lines that's just That's amazing. Since you mentioned her as a writer, because obviously what we're referencing here is that she did a lot of the screenwriting as well as directing. We'll get Mm -hmm. to that in a second. But she's written a lot of works as well. Have you read some of her written pieces, whether articles or books? No. One of my resolutions this year was to try to read more because Mm -hmm. I love to read but as my life has gotten busier I have a little uh, notebook that I keep track of how many books I've read like the last five years I've only read like 15 books oh it's bad that surprises me yes it's bad I just don't have the time when you edit so much and you're always at Mm -hmm. the theater or working or it's just I have not had the time to sit down so that's one of my goals so I would like to read more of her work this this year awesome I like that goal. Well, let's talk about Nora's life, which I found fascinating as well. This woman was so interesting, but she was born May 19th, 1941 in New York City. And in the first four years of her life, she lived on Upper West Side in Manhattan, which is a neighborhood that she comes back to a lot in her writing. It definitely made a big impression on her. She was the oldest of four daughters and her parents were Henry and Phoebe Efron, who were writers themselves. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. who moved to L.A. when Nora was around three because they wanted to work in the film industry. Phoebe, their mom, has been described across multiple sources as being a very driven person. And she, along with her husband, Henry, did write films for Hollywood. In fact, one of, to me, it was one of their most notable works. I was shocked to find out they were the ones who wrote the screenplay for Carousel, the movie really? that was based on the stage play. Oh. That was something I knew because I've obviously seen the stage play mm-hmm. several times. Mm-hmm. And they also wrote the Katherine Hepburn, Spencer Tracy film, Desk Set. Oh, I've seen that. I like that. Well, the home obviously had some of the benefits, right? Here's a Hollywood couple. There were the parties. There were some of those interesting things that the daughters got to experience. Mm -hmm. But there were also a lot of challenges because, spoiler alert, all of the daughters ended up being writers. Did they? I knew she wrote with Delia sometimes, but I did not realize that she had other two other sisters that also wrote. Absolutely. Okay. 
But because they were all writers, some of the sisters wrote articles or pieces about their family. So this mm-hmm. actually comes from Hallie. Okay. She wrote an article for Oprah's magazine called O Magazine. Mm-hmm. And in that article, I'm going to reference it probably a few different times here, but she described her mother's mothering style as letting them make their own mistakes. Okay. In a good way or? Um, not really. Oh. Phoebe was described by the various sisters in, in different sources as being emotionally unavailable to the daughters. Do you think she poured it all into her work? Well, that seemed to be an issue. It also kind of just seemed to be her style. She felt like they just needed to handle things themselves. Nora said at one point that if you brought a problem to her mother, her mother would say, I'm not interested, bring it back when it's funny. I mean, just she just seemed, I think, very caught up in her interests. She also was an alcoholic. Henry drank as well. They did not describe him as an alcoholic, but that was an issue because Hallie said when the two of them were drinking, there would be fights mm-hmm. and sometimes they would go on till midnight. Mm-hmm. So it didn't sound like it was this peaceful home environment. Yeah, yeah. Phoebe had such an issue that she actually died at 57 of cirrhosis of the liver. Oh. And there was a quote where she supposedly told her daughter, this is from Phoebe, I hope you never tell anyone what happens here. And on her deathbed, when well, when she was in the hospital dying, Nora said that her mom said to her, you're a writer, take notes. So she was very businesslike. She, she sounded kind of distant, kind yeah. of very serious yeah. about the things that really mattered to it her. Wasn't, it wasn't talking about how much she cared about her. It was advice for your career. Mm-hmm. On the flip side, okay. one thing that Hallie said Phoebe did really well was that she exposed all the girls to a lot of literature. Mm. And, and much of that literature involved very strong females. Okay. And so she has great memories. A lot of the daughters talked about reading together, talking mm-hmm. about books, and, mm-hmm. and just language was well, all around be, them. Yeah, that would be more in the mom's wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. The language and literature and words, that seems where she was the most comfortable. Absolutely. Maybe that's how she was showing her, if she was showing affection, that's how she was doing it by saying, let me introduce you to the people that I love. Right. Maybe that was her love language. Right. Well, and it continued in other ways because a lady named Kristen Marguerite Deutsch, I believe is how you would say her last name, wrote a biography about Nora Ephron and she shared in that another thing that Phoebe did well which was her letter writing which mm-hmm. actually was very inspirational to Nora it was shared in this book that Phoebe would write Nora these beautiful letters mm-hmm. that Nora would share with her friends at summer camp and mm-hmm. then later in college and these letters on the flip side of of how Phoebe was as a person relating to her daughters in person these letters would be humorous and witty mm-hmm. and personable and sophisticated and Nora loved them like she loved relating to her mother this way and actually commented that it helped her to craft her Her skills as a writer yeah it sounds definitely like Phoebe's love language is words of affirmation Mm -hmm. so that goes with the literature she's sharing words with her daughters absolutely and then to finish this out literally I love this quote from one of the articles it said in the Efron household the family religion was language Mm. and you had to be on your toes so Hallie described and this actually came up in something that Nora described as well their dinners were these huge affairs where language was at the center so Hallie said quote at dinner a three-course event that anchored every evening at 6 30 sharp the competition for airtime was Darwinian 
My instinct was to step back from the fray. I didn't have the stomach to fight to be heard. But yeah. dinner was all about words and talk. Banter. And Boy, I love yes. good banter. That's fun. So brings us back to that point with Phoebe. Everything is copy. That's what she believed. Take everything that's happened to you, turn it into a story, mm-hmm. turn it into some type of communication. And that's something that Nora took from her mother mm-hmm. very clearly. And mm-hmm. she did it beautifully. So all this influence with reading and writing is probably why Nora idolized the writer Dorothy Parker when she was growing up. Oh, I bet. Yes. Yes. That makes a lot of sense. She actually got to meet Dorothy Parker when she was a child. She remembers she was in her pajamas and her parents were having this party, this Hollywood party, and Dorothy Parker came over. Can you imagine? I mean, mean, this is a childhood experience for her. Right. And then she met Dorothy Parker again when she was 20 and commented that she was surprised because in her mind, she had the you know, Dorothy Parker was going to be so much larger than life. And in fact, she's described Dorothy as being frail and tiny and twinkly. Well, at least she was twinkly, but she was probably a little bit older, you know. She was. She was. But Nora went on to say that it didn't matter. Quote, the point is the legend. Mm -hmm. I grew up on it and coveted it desperately. All I wanted in this world was to come to New York and be Dorothy Parker, Mm. the funny lady, Mm -hmm. the only lady at the table. Mm, The Algonquin round table. Nora actually kind of went on to outgrow Dorothy Parker a little bit, but I think this speaks to... Well, wasn't Dorothy Parker's wit more biting? And Nora seemed to have a gentleness to it, or at least a relatability. Right. Well, one last comment that I'll share about Nora as someone growing up during her childhood. This is a comment from her sister Hallie again. Quote, I might add that she was a voracious reader with a monster intellect who had opinions on everything, including things she knew little about. Mm. Once, after a particularly lively discussion during Thanksgiving dinner, I asked Nora how in the world she managed to stay so well-informed. I don't, she told me. It doesn't matter how much you know. What matters is how confidently you say it. That's it. That's (laughs) it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yes, this is what happened. I think that says something about Nora. I I liked that story. (laughs) Well, she went on to Wesley College, graduated in 1962 with a degree in journalism, and her first job after college was as a White House intern under John F. Kennedy. Oh, that'll get it, man. Yeah. What's funny is, she said in a 2006 interview with ABC News that, I was probably the only person in the entire Kennedy White House that JFK had not made a pass at. I was going to ask, did he make a pass at her? because that seems to be what he enjoyed doing. That was his pastime, is making passes. She actually wasn't there very long, and she only had one encounter where he said something to her in passing, but it was a good way to start. Mm-hmm. She ends up going back to New York and found work in a mailroom at Newsweek magazine, and before long, she got promoted to being a researcher. Now, one of her big breaks came in 1962 after there was this newspaper strike that had shut down all the major newspapers in the city. Nora Ephron had a friend this editor named Victor Navosky, and he began to do parodies of all the New York papers. And he asked Nora to do a parody of this gossip column by a man named Leonard Lyons that would be published in the New York Post. Okay. So she did some research. She read all these clippings of Lyons' column, and then 
she parodied him so well that it caught the attention of the publisher of the New York Post, Dorothy Schiff. And instead of being offended, this lady was impressed. She said, quote, if they can parody the Post, they can write for it. Ooh. And she ends up hiring Nora to be on staff for what them. What a thing. Man, that's, that's cool. Now, she loved it. On this documentary, I saw many, many little quotes and, and sound bites from Nora herself, which was fascinating. Mm-hmm. But she commented that she felt guilty because at first she was asked to cover, I think, a lot of true crime. Mm-hmm. And it was obviously disturbing, but mm-hmm. she found it so fascinating that then she felt bad about felt it. Bad. It's, like yeah. our, it's like our girl Maureen. Yes, exactly. Yes. Well, while she was working at the Post, she also began to write these occasional essays for other publications like New York, Esquire, the New York Times, you know, all these different things. And so she started to make a name for herself. Mm-hmm. She started getting some some nice critical reviews. One of the things that was commented upon in an article was that there was something of a new journalism movement is what they called it in the 1960s. And this is where y- you would hear more of the personal voice of the people who were writing. Uh, yeah. They inserted themselves more into the story instead of being so objective. Okay. And so she was obviously brilliant at this and so started kind of making a name for herself. And by the early 70s, she was out there as an essayist. And then as a regular columnist for Esquire, she became known as one of America's best humorous Mm. and they said that obviously as we've said before her essays would often focus on very personal everyday topics that a lot of other writers wouldn't delve into because they didn't want to share that about themselves Mm -hmm. exactly in terms of her personal life it was in 1976 that Nora was divorced from her first husband a writer and humorist named Dan Greenberg they had married back in 1967 but then after nine years it was over one source said they'd actually been separated for I think a year or two before the divorce came about mm-hmm. but then Nora married her second husband and I know you know something about this I think I do well it was Carl Bernstein oh oh from uh like um the Nixon yes they were the the reporters yes yes and she's the one that guessed who Deep Throat was you are exactly yeah, right yeah based on the clues I remember you had mentioned that yes. one day yes yeah Carl Bernstein was the one who worked with Bob Woodward to expose President Nixon's Watergate scandal mm-hmm. Nora ends up married to him. Of course, they'd met each other through all these journalist Mm -hmm. connections. Well, then after marriage, Carl Bernstein now worked at ABC News as the D.C. bureau chief after he had left the post. And he offered Nora her first chance to be a screenwriter, asking her to help him in rewriting the script for All the President's Men, which was going to be a feature film about their Watergate investigation. Unfortunately, her version of the script did not get used. But it got her started mm, on that path. On screenplays. Mm-hmm. And to follow up on what you just said, to give just a little bit more about that, yes, she knew who Deep Throat was all along, and she talked about it, and nobody ever believed her. In fact, here's a quote from a 2005 Huffington Post column that after the identity of Deep Throat had actually come out, yeah, yeah. it was, by the way, Mark Felt. Right. So here's what she said. I knew that Deep Throat was Mark Felt because I figured it out. She is an investigative journalist. Right. She's a girl reporter. And she was married to Carl right. Bernstein. So here's what she said. I'll continue with that. Carl Bernstein, to whom I was married for a brief time, certainly would never have told me. 
He was far too intelligent to tell me a secret like that. He refused to tell his children, too, who are also my children, so I told them, and they told others, and even so, years passed, and no one really listened to any of us. Mm. I thought that was fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why would you not listen? I don't know. I, well, after the birth of their first child, Jacob, Nora started cutting back on her work as a journalist, and this is where she started to spend more time working on trying to do some screenplays. I guess that would be easier for her to do at home. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. She was spending more time as a mother. Mm-hmm. And so this is this is how she kind of made that compromise to still be able to be a writer. She actually sometimes would try to work on scripts for some television episodes. And she did sell some of her screenplays, but they were not produced. Mm. Now, this was really cool. Again, going back to the documentary, there was a clip where Nora gave some advice. Even though this is actually where she moves away from journalism in terms of her life, it is clear how much this impacted her and how much she valued her experience as a journalist because this is what she said in this little clip. She said, anytime people ask her for advice about getting into the business of making movies, she literally says to them, go be a journalist. Really? She said, it is the very best training you can get because it teaches you to write very clean sentences Mm. and to get to the point instantly Mm. or else people will stop reading. And then she also goes on to say, many people don't understand that's an obligation of writing that you have to be able to get to your point quickly or you lose people. That's the truth, especially now. As much as it was back then, think about now and our attention Mm -hmm. spans. Absolutely. So here's Nora. She's a mother. She's working on her writing. And midway through her second pregnancy with her son, Max, she learned that her husband was having an affair. Oh, the Bernstein was having an affair? Mm -hmm. I'm surprised you didn't know that. I thought it was the first husband. Oh, okay. Well, it, it was Carl. Carl. (laughs) So their marriage ended, and I don't know what their custody arrangements were, but the way the articles read, this was really challenging for Nora. She had a lot of time raising these boys alone, Mm -hmm. and that was hard, but the entire experience was devastating, but it led to something very positive. What? This led to her first novel, Heartburn. Oh, I've heard of this. Mm. It's billed as a fictional novel. It ain't fictional. (laughs) so clearly based on her experience with Carl. This book is not about Jackson. (laughs) Well, he threatened to sue her. Like, it was ugly. Yeah, it was so clearly not fictional that there was a a lot of uh, hoopla around it. it. From Carl, it was Earl. (laughs) Instead of Nora, it was Dora. (laughs) Well, in the documentary that I saw, Mike Nichols, who is a director who worked with Nora quite a bit, obviously, will he'll come up again later. But he clearly was also a very close friend. He commented that after this experience happened to her, she moved to a new place, she cried for six months, and then she wrote it funny. Mm. And in writing it funny, she won. Yeah, that's what I said earlier. Okay, yes, that's what that came from. That came from okay. him. And he went on to add, and all the betrayed women out there were behind her. Yeah. Yeah. So I, again, the relatability, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. the fact that she was willing to open up like that, and I, you could see how the women would rally around her. Right. You know, anybody who'd been through that type of experience. Right. It's, mm-hmm. It sort of reminds me of the play that my mom and I co-wrote a few years ago. He needed killing. We mm-hmm. did the same thing. We tried to take a very 
serious subject, which was emotional abuse, and turn it into something that was, it had serious moments, but we approached it with a sense of humor. And a lot of people, it really, it really moved them because mm. it was something that needed to be talked about. It makes it more accessible. Yeah. 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 If there's humor there, you can, you can deal with hard things a little easier. Right. Yeah. Well, 1983 ended up being an amazing year for Nora professionally because two amazing things happened. First, her screenplay for the film Silkwood, which I don't know if you've seen that. I have not. Oh, okay. I have seen this. Is it good? I loved it. And now it's been years, but I thought it was a solid film. It is based on the life of an anti-nuclear activist who came to a, in some ways, I think, mysterious end. Oh. But yeah, it came to a bad end. Was she killed? We can spoil it. It's like from I, the 80s, right? Well, that's true. If I recall correctly, it's been many years. You suspect she was murdered. Oh. Yeah. Like, it was, that's how it was, they end it? Well, I don't know if that was the very end of it but that was kind of left it leaves the audience thinking that they shut her up Mm -hmm. because she was speaking up against Mm -hmm. very bad things that were going on in her company Cher was the friend was the roommate Meryl Streep (gasps) Meryl Streep Mm -hmm. okay and she was amazing Kurt Russell was in it as well I thought it was a very good film I'll have to watch that I've heard about it Mm -hmm. I did not realize she wrote that so now I need to watch it yeah and it was very successful at the time it it did very well it was directed by Mike Nichols Mm. And it was kind of interesting because Nora didn't think she would love the filmmaking process. You know, she was about the screenwriting. She was about the writing. But she said that when she was on the set for Silkwood, she found it riveting. I bet because you're seeing the people say the words that you wrote. Yeah, she absolutely loved it. And of course, I'm sure this leads into her deciding later she wants to be a director. Well, the other thing that happened in 1983 that was super exciting was the novel she had written, Heartburn, came out very popular. And this leads to, a few years later, a film adaptation starring, again, Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson. Man, I got stuff to watch. (laughs) I have got stuff to watch. Yeah. Again, directed by Mike Nichols. Mm -hmm. The script was by Nora, and it did well. So... Things are definitely looking up in her life. Yeah, yeah the single mom is doing great. Yeah. And in fact, she didn't stay single long because in 1987 is when she married her final husband. And I think what she would have considered the love of her life, author and journalist Nicholas Pelegi. Now, he was known for his true crime stories, but he basically was a writer himself, obviously. Well, that would appeal to her true crime origins in the newspaper. Yeah. And apparently, two of his stories, his works, led to films by Martin Scorsese, mm. Goodfellas, and Casino. Well, that mm-hmm. is quite a pedigree. Yeah. So these two did remain married until they the should have end written, of her life. They should have written a funny true crime movie. That would have been funny. That would have been funny. Sorry. I just thought of that. <laughs> Okay, keep going. Well, they they stayed married to the end of their life, and her friends commented that she really seemed to believe in love, mm-hmm. which they credited with kind mm-hmm. of Nick bringing that back for her. That's good. And, and what a wonderful relationship the two of them had. So now it leads us into some of her rom-coms that we've been heading toward. Yes. Before we go there, should we take a short break? Yes, we should. We are back and ready to talk about When Harry Met Sally. When Harry Met (laughs) Sally. Which I don't know if you agree, but I saw in one article that they speculated this is her most celebrated rom-com. They feel like this is her best one. Do you agree with that? mm, Gosh, I don't know. I don't know. I would put Sleepless in Seattle. But I think the soundtrack to Sleepless in Seattle may have Mm -hmm. given it an edge for me. And I think the interviews take a little bit away from it. 
it. I would prefer, have preferred it to just be the straight film mm. of Harry and Sally, but that's just a personal preference. Uh, yeah. But I, I like Sleepless in Seattle better. Okay. Very interesting. Well, When Harry Met Sally came out in 1989. It was directed by Rob Reiner. Mm -hmm. Of course, it starred Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan. And this film was an international oh, hit. Oh, yeah. I'm I not mean, taking, audiences yes. loved it. I'm yes. not taking anything away from it. That end part when Billy Crystal is like, when you meet the person that you want to spend the rest of your life with, you want the rest of your life to start as soon as possible. I'm like, <laughs> I love so that you beautiful. said that. You remember it so well. Yeah. So coincidentally, I was going to mention that. Oh. <laughs> Rob Reiner and Nora chatted for a while uh -huh. on this documentary I saw. It was the cutest thing. They were like best buds just oh. sitting there on a couch together yeah. chatting about yeah. this movie and they shared some little tidbits that I found fascinating. Okay. And one of the things they mentioned was that ending, which they both loved. And they said it was Billy who noticed the little crinkle between oh. Meg Ryan's eyebrows and kind of added mm -hmm. that idea. And then they also, they they did like the idea of the couples being yeah, interviewed. Yeah, that's fine. Because one of the comments, I think it was Rob who said it, was that he really loved that after that speech from Billy, then you have the couple on the couch with everybody else telling their story mm -hmm, and they just mm -hmm. felt that that was just such a successful yeah, I mean, moment oh no i get it yeah, yeah we have our personal preferences yeah. i'm not yes but a few other things they shared. If I understood this correctly, Rob said that the idea for the movie was something that he had kind of pitched to Nora and that as they were working to create it, they would actually sometimes change things as they were working on the movie based on things that happened in their everyday experience. So for example, one day they were eating lunch together and Nora placed her order and was so high maintenance <laughs> that it led to the very famous oh, scene in the movie where Sally is ordering. They decided this is something that will help develop Sally's character. Yeah, that's what I mean. They're just such quirky, complicated, complex, relatable people. Mm -hmm. And then it. Rob went on to say that it, it brings him no, or brought him no end of joy to know that his mom is now in <laughs> some kind of, that I don't even scene, know. Oh my gosh. <laughs> she's in some kind of website or something listed as one of the top 100 lines of all time, along with people like Marlon Brando oh because gosh. of her famous, <laughs> I'll have what she's, she's having. having. Yes. <laughs> that would I would be I would be so embarrassed to have to do the scene that preceded what she said that to. Oh, so funny. Well, about this time, Nora started to think about moving from screenwriter to maybe trying her hand at directing. Okay. Now, obviously, I think she was just interested in the sure. idea. She'd been on the set quite a bit. She had a friend who was a director, but a couple of friends, apparently. But the, this article speculated that part of her thinking might have also been, you know, watching her parents struggle as screenwriters because it's challenging. You can sometimes be successful and have your script turned into a movie and then maybe it's two or three more years of nothing before it gets produced right and also they pointed out that this was a time when it was harder for women women were not doing as as well in terms of having their scripts right. picked up or films about women being the ones that people necessarily wanted to see but unfortunately her directing debut did not go so well what was her first one it was this film called this is my life and mm. she had 
had actually co-written the screenplay with her sister Delia. It was their very first time collaborating together. And the focus was, this was supposed to be a single mother who was working as a stand-up comic, but you know, all the struggles that she faced, and it just did not do well at the box office. This was around 1992, by the way. But... It was followed by 1993's Sleepless in Seattle. Sleepless in Seattle. There it is. And this, of course. That was in 1993? Mm-hmm. I thought it was 89. What do huge, I know? Huge, huge success. You know why? 93. 93 was the year. <laughs> It was the best year Always. Gonna, that is so funny. <laughs> and she did co-write this one again with her younger sister, Delia. Okay. And it was cute because Delia talked about this a little bit. So here's a little quote about how their collaboration worked. Mm-hmm. We would get together and do everything. We would sit in the kitchen and outline the story, eat a lot, sometimes shop, and then we might go home and send each other scenes with problems for the other one to solve. (laughs) That's one of the great things about collaboration. You can always just bump a problem to the other one. Mm -hmm. And then I got better as a screenwriter and Nora got much more into directing. Mm. So so there for a time, they were very involved with collaborating with each other. But as time would go on, it was kind of off and on. Sure. They had their different projects. Yeah, it's good to have your own projects. Well, they talked about the casting they they brought meg ryan back you know she'd been yeah, so that's success- a definite yeah but this is where they brought in tom hanks and a comment was this was in the documentary as well they said that they felt like one of the things that made this so successful was that this was the first time that tom hanks really was seen as a man and mm. not as a boy mm. and then he commented that something he thought tom hanks um, himself thought made this film so successful was that so many times the guy is he called him adult so many times the guy is adult who by the end of the movie is not a jerk because of the woman yeah yeah but he liked that in this case the character was understandable yes. emotional and real the whole time the whole time i like mm-hmm. that too yeah well this movie was so successful that nora efron really had now established herself as one of the top creators of romantic comedies and it's funny because this is one of the one of probably one of the top romantic comedies of all time and the two leads only spin a few minutes on screen mm-hmm. together That's most so of it true. is about them being apart and it was based on that very famous film i'm sure you know it and a fair to remember there you go mm-hmm. so that's the thing they they took this classic movie that was yeah. you know a, a love story yeah. and update it for the yes, for the I modern like the audience with rita wilson where she's in there crying and she's like in her little legs and then they see each other <laughs> and then they hug and, and then tom hanks is like that's a chick's movie <laughs> that's awesome yeah. here's where your favorite movie comes in Mixed nuts. Mixed nuts. What's next? Oh, I love that movie. Dang, yeah. I love that movie. It, which it was. Disappointing it was not. Yeah, it was not a success. Of, right. Commercially, it was disappointing. However, obviously, lots of fans. Lots. <laughs> well, of... just one. At least one. <laughs> and then another one that was actually interesting, I think, because Michael starring John Travolta as an angel, mm-hmm. actually did okay at the box office. However, I read an article during my research literally titled How Andy McDowell Was Cast in What Many Consider to Be Nora Ephron's Worst Movie. Really? And it was published in December of 2022. Dang. And in this article, Andy McDowell basically defends it. By the way, this was 1996. Again, she was with John Travolta playing the angel Michael. And Andy says it was a good film. Mm-hmm. She does understand why people decided that it was not she doesn't know why it's taken so much criticism she felt like it was solid this was a little hurtful and she also mentioned that she felt like John Travolta had a great
great presence. But regardless, 1998 followed up with another huge success, which was You've Got Mail. Oh, that's right. Yes. So she mm-hmm. brought Tom and Meg back together. Yeah. 100%. And that's also a redo of The Shop Around the Corner. 100%. Well, it's actually a third redo. It was The Shop Around the Corner first. Then it was In the Good Old Summertime. And then it was You've Got Mail. And now it's uh, She Loves Me on on Broadway. Nice. Same same plot. You've got your uh, your play history <laughs> down Rolodex there. My Rolodex awesome. is, is a flipping today. <laughs> I love it. So we've been talking so much about the successes, and I think everybody loved that. But just to touch on something that's a tiny bit controversial. Okay. <laughs> there was some talk across the different pieces where people commented that Nora could be intimidating or a little awkward to work with awkward yes i don't know if that's the best word okay but does she have a little bit of her mom well that's what i wondered like i wondered if it she's just was so businesslike uh-huh. but supposedly over the years even people like tom hanks and meg ryan have come not open criticism but just little comments uh-huh. that led people to think that nora efron was just a little tricky to interact with just a little distant maybe mm-hmm. in fact meryl streep has even been said to have called nora efron quote intimidating according to the and that's new yorker meryl streep saying that that was meryl streep mm-hmm. now but Me- Meaning Meryl Streep is pretty intimidating herself. Well, okay, that's a good point. And Meryl Streep also talked so lovingly about Nora at different times, Mm -hmm. too. But it's just this reputation that Nora seemed to have. Mm -hmm. Most people adored her, and everybody seemed to recognize her as a trailblazer. But Andy McDowell even said, quote, I was a little intimidated. This was something she said to Vulture when she was talking about working with Nora. But I like how Andy McDowell then went on to clarify. Here's what she said this is just her opinion sure quote i think nora in the time she was directing was forced to she had to really be in touch with her masculine side i remember one time somebody tried to help her up onto something and she was like no thank you that sort of thing at that period of time women were fighting so hard to be accepted as equal Mm -hmm. they'd wear suits and act like men in order to be taken seriously so i think there was that part of her that was very powerful because she felt that's what she had to do in order to succeed she had to let go of some of her feminine side. I think in her real life, she allowed that, but at work, she was tough. Hmm. Interesting. So I just wanted to make sure that I brought that out because it was something that I saw. But again, to be fair, I did not see ever that people didn't like her right. or like working with her. It was right. just a comment that she was that she was a little businesslike, a little brusque sometimes. Yeah. I have a I have a thought on that. I don't know if we want to armchair that or talk about it. What did you say it? Well, thinking as a as a person who's been in a lead position on projects, mm-hmm. be it a movie, be it a play, be it anything, I'm wondering if because I I've been told by some people that they were or are intimidated by me and you know me I mean you've sat across me for you feel me for 14 14- intimidating person <laughs> no I'm not but sometimes I'm single-minded mm. so when I have an idea mm-hmm. it's I know what I want and here's how I want to get it and I try to be very kind with mm-hmm. explaining what I want but it always surprises me when people say they're very intimidated by me so I wonder if it's not so much a woman thing Mm -hmm. as it is a driven artist thing Mm -hmm. where she has an idea and she knows what she wants and then people who are maybe working for her see that drive and see that oh my gosh she's so confident and maybe she wasn't inside Mm -hmm. I know I hardly 
ever am. So I wonder if that's it instead. Honestly, I had the same thought. Did you? I did. I did wonder if the fact that she was a woman made people notice it more. Because I think sometimes men get a pass if they're a little bit more blunt or to the point or business-like. Maybe. Because maybe it's more expected. And they may have commented more upon Nora doing it because she was a woman. But that's exactly what I was thinking. This was somebody who knew her stuff, was very purposeful. She had already said as a journalist, you get to the point, Mm -hmm. you cut things out, you Mm -hmm. you try to like, you know, really be concise. I'm very aware of people's time. So Mm -hmm. I don't want to waste your time because I don't want my time wasted. Mm -hmm. So this is how we're going to do it and plan it out and let's get this and get it done. And I know what I want. Right. And so I think that's that's what I took away from it too. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, moving on. This is where Nora started trying her hand at some different things. She took a stab at writing a stage play, which was in 2002. The play was Imaginary Friends and it was based on, I'd never heard of this, but some rivalry between the authors Lillian Hellman and Mary McCarthy. Interesting. I've heard Mm -hmm. of Lillian Hellman. Who's Mary McCarthy? I don't Don't know. know. Yeah. Then, of course, something else that was different. She tried to do a film adaptation of the 1960s television show, Bewitched, starring Nicole Kidman and Will Ferrell. That That was her. And then she moved into doing a collection of essays in 2006. It was called I Feel Bad About My Neck and Other (laughs) Reflections on Being a Woman. Nice. (laughs) Now, that did really well. That went to number one on the New York Times bestseller list. And then she came back to a successful movie using well i honestly i i did not cover everything she did i'm not sure where hanging up i think it was her last one okay well this one that i'm thinking of is julie and julia which right she brought meryl streep back again yes she's got her people she likes working oh yes and stanley tucci Mm. yes and this one i've never seen it did you did you watch this one yes i did well something else that came out in the documentary and some of the articles that apparently also came out in this movie was nora's love for food like she was kind of, she was a foodie. She, was she a really foodie. was. And so this seemed like it was right up her alley. She was telling the parallel stories of the famous food writer, Julia Child, alongside a the, blogger. Yes. This Manhattan woman who, who set out to cook through every recipe in mm-hmm. Julia Child's classic cookbook called Mastering the Art of French Cooking. Yes. And the 2009 film, again, did bring Meryl Streep back as Julia Child. She did a good job. And Meryl commented that she really thought that her character in Stanley Tucci's had shades of Nora and Nick in really? them. Really? Yes. Oh, they were very, very sweet in that mm-hmm. film. That's, yes, I love that. Well, in addition to her books, plays, and movies, Nora also wrote a regular blog for the online news site, The Huffington Post. And her 2010 collection of essays called I Remember Nothing (laughs) also came out. And that's where she really focused in on writing basically funny essays about aging and other topics. Mm -hmm. Now... I did not see where Hanging Up came in. What do you know about that one? I, I saw I, it. It's a film. I saw it a long, long time ago. A film about three sisters, and I think their father mm. is dying. Walter Matthau was in it. Diane Keaton, Lisa Kudrow, and Meg Ryan were the sisters. I do remember, you know how it is when you, it's such a big topic, I couldn't cover everything. I do remember seeing, they called on some of their experience, she called on some of her experiences with her father. And probably her sisters too. Mm-hmm, I'm sure. Yes, but I just didn't include that That's in okay. here. Well, to kind of bring this to a close, Nora obviously was one of the standout 
successful women film directors working in Hollywood through this time. And she did something that other people weren't necessarily doing, which was she kept putting strong women in these lead roles. One of the sources, I can't honestly remember, I think it might have been one of her sisters, somebody commented that Nora didn't really like being labeled a feminist, but that she was definitely a woman who believed in other women and the power they had mm-hmm. to, to do important things. Mm-hmm. And so a comment that was made in one of the articles was that it probably pleased her no end to see that all three of her sisters were also successful novelists, you know, that they all were making a career out of writing, which is awesome. But in 2012, Nora died of complications from leukemia. And it was really shocking because she was so private. This Mm -hmm. here was a woman who laid her life out there and was so vulnerable. And this was something that she did not tell people. How long had she had it? It didn't say exactly, or I didn't see exactly, but I think it was a few years at least. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it it literally called it a long illness. It might have been three or four, Mm. but only her closest friends and family members knew. And she died at the age of 71. So young. mm -hmm. And it was around three years after her death that that same documentary I've already referenced, Everything is Copy, by her son, journalist Jacob Bernstein, came out. And it was apparently a beautiful tribute to his mother. It received good reviews, really nice reviews, very clear how much he respected and loved his mom, Mm -hmm. just from the little clips Mm -hmm. I saw. And one thing I did see was when Jacob was speaking in an interview about her death, and he was he was crying as on this in this interview. And he shared the story of being in an elevator with Mike Nichols, that same director we've Mm -hmm. talked about after his mom had passed. And he said they looked at each other and asked, who's going to tell us what to do? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I thought I would close by sharing just this short clip from one of the documentaries. This is Nora herself talking. It's a little piece of one of her essays she did for that 2011 I Remember Nothing. Okay. What I will miss. My kids. Nick. Spring, fall, butter, a walk in the park, dinner with friends, dinner with friends in cities where none of us lives, Paris, next year in Istanbul, pride and prejudice, the Christmas tree, Thanksgiving dinner, one for the table, the dogwood, taking a bath, coming over the bridge to Manhattan, pie. Why did that make me so emotional? It's just a list of things. But it's a list of things that she said I will miss. I know. And that got me. Me too. Yeah. Oh, right. Armchair psychologist. For our armchair, Ashley, and we've already established how much you admire her. Mm-hmm. But our theme, as we've already said for this month, is creators and innovators. Mm -hmm. And so what is it that you admire and respect about her as a creator or innovator? What do you think? What do you think makes her stand out? Well, I think I talked about it at the top. 
I think it's just her understanding and empathy of people and characters and everyone is complex and no one is all good and no one is all bad. I mean, some people are, but you know, I'm talking about regular people, Mm -hmm. just our average everyday person. And there's so much dimension to everyone. And I love how she just, any of her characters could be someone that you know, or could be you and you can relate to them. And I haven't seen that. Sometimes your characters will be oh, I could never be that person. You know, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy and all of that. You just couldn't achieve that. But the people in Mixed Nuts, oh yeah, I can see my, this is, I can see this person being this character. My friend could be that person. I could be this one. Mm -hmm. And it just, you can see yourself in their shoes. And that's a gift. Mm -hmm. It's a real gift. Yeah. And her way with dialogue. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I think we've come back to that so many times and it makes sense as somebody who had the upbringing she had and then the experiences and the expertise with language that, that she clearly did have, but to be able to not only use words the way she did, but also be funny with it like I think that's something that I really respect and admire because it's hard enough to communicate well through words but then to also be able to to be funny or -hmm. to go back and forth from Mm -hmm. really touching really emotional really vulnerable and then funny let's talk since this is our Valentine's episode let's bring it back to love specifically love in the rom-com she mentions that she would miss Pride and Prejudice Mm -hmm. I don't think that a romance like Pride and Prejudice would ever happen to me. The way they speak to each other, the grand gestures, that is never going to happen. But a guy could stand across to me and say, I love the way that your nose wrinkles. I love the way that you Mm. order a sandwich. That love story, I could put myself in. So she wrote love stories. You could imagine them really happening to you. Mm -hmm. You know, we watch Pride and Prejudice for the dream. That's never going to happen. But Harry standing across from Sally or Tom Hanks saying how much he loved his wife and just Mm -hmm. the little things that could happen. Yeah. That's a nice little clarification there because they literally called her the creator of the modern, Modern. the modern Mm -hmm. rom-com. And then I think about today, who, who do we consider to be the creator of rom-coms today? They quit doing them because people kept trying to imitate Nora and it got to be unbelievable. It Mm -hmm. started to become these situations that would again, never happen. But we had this rash of rom-coms that were truly sweet and genuine Mm -hmm. in the late 80s through, I don't know, maybe early 2000, where it was this rush of like this could really happen but now Mm -hmm. it just feels it would never happen it's almost a little bit of a lost art right now yeah it's kind of like the musicals fell out for a while i think the rom-coms have fallen Mm -hmm. out for more of the adventure movies the marvel movies Mm -hmm. which is fine there's time for everything but right Hopefully there'll be someone that will take up the mantle and bring us some romantic comedies that's like, oh, this is real people really falling in love with Mm -hmm. real situations. Yes. And I know we could stop there, but I'm just going to add one more comment, which is the fact that she also, I think, had such a talent for then being able to cast it. Yes. Because... These average, relatable mm -hmm. people. Who then had such chemistry Mm -hmm. and like the words are so believable, but then the relationships and the way they interacted with each other just sealed the deal. It did. They're beautiful people, but they are normal, everyday looking people. You know what I mean? They're still Mm -hmm. handsome. They're still beautiful, but it's like, I, they look like somebody that would be in my neighborhood. Mm -hmm. Well, kudos to you, Nora Ephron. For Valentine's Day, I can't think of anybody I would like to celebrate and honor more than the queen of the rom-com. Yes. Thank you for bringing us a lot of love and a lot of joy. Yes. Cheers to you, Nora.
Cheers. If you love what we do, please rate and review our show. Or you can become a supporter by making a donation through buymeacoffee.com slash scandalwaterpod. Whether a single gift or a recurring monthly donation, it would go a long way towards supporting our work and allowing us to keep the tea brewing. At our website, www.scandalwaterpodcast.com, you can submit questions or your own story ideas, access our sources and show notes, see the merch we offer for sale, and more. You can join the Scandal Water community through our Scandal Water Podcast Facebook page or follow us on Instagram or TikTok at Scandal Water Podcast. This episode was executive produced by Candy Thomas, that's me, and Ashley Raymer Brown. That's me. It was researched and written by Candy Thomas and edited by Ashley Raymer Brown. A special thank you to Josh Martin, who wrote, composed, and performed the Scandal Water theme and other music. Matt C. Adams, who created the artwork, and Joshua Reith, who designed our website and provides ongoing technical support. As a reminder, this podcast is purely for entertainment purposes. The thoughts and opinions of the host during each episode of Scandal Water are their own and do not reflect the opinions of any future guests, advertisers, or clearly professional psychologists. Thanks for listening.